<clears throat> Welcome. My name's Kyle Lundquist. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're really glad you're here. We have been working through the book of Hebrews. Today we're in Hebrews 11. So why don't you turn there? I'm just going to read through our passage in a minute. We're going to be uh, Hebrews, 1, uh, sorry, Hebrews 11, verse 1, all the way to 16. So why don't you turn to Hebrews 1, and we'll read through that together. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. All right, let me read through this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith." By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth." For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone, gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we present ourselves to you today. We know you're here, and we ask that you would transform us into your image? Would we pay attention to the Spirit? Would you convict, encourage, would you heal? Would you remind us of truth? Would you uproot lies? Would you instill courage to follow you in hardship? We pray all of this in your name. Amen. I want us to begin by thinking about um, the fact that when life gets hard, it's often harder to follow Jesus. 
Um, that's not always the case. Sometimes when hard things happen, we actually feel more compelled to turn to Christ. My wife and I, uh, as many of you know, our, our house burned down earlier this year, and it actually was a hardship that just turned us to Jesus. But I can think of other moments in my life where hard things happen, and there's something in me that wants to shrink away from Jesus, that wants to pull away, where obedience gets harder. Hard things happen, and it's hard to persevere in obedience and faithfulness and love and patience. Um, one example from my life that I will never forget, years ago, one of my dear friends passed away. And uh, the, the day I found that out, I, I received a text from his dad earlier that day, and the text sort of felt ominous because I knew my friend wasn't doing well. And so I've got some anxiety in my heart as I'm thinking about calling my friend's dad that evening, and, and we get on the phone, and he lets me know that Sam has passed away. And I was so, I, I remember I was sitting Remember right where I was, sitting in my car in the parking lot at Biola over by some Talbot classes. Kelly was already in a Talbot class, and I was, we didn't go, I didn't go in, but I was going to go in. And I just sat there and cried. And it sparked this season of my life where it was harder to endure in faithfulness. I didn't feel like praying. It was hard to do good. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, do not grow weary in doing good because he knows we grow weary of doing good. And sometimes we grow weary because life is hard. And for you, the hardship, it, it may not be death, it could be disappointment. Maybe you've longed for something to happen for a long time and you've prayed for it for years and it hasn't come to pass and it's hard to endure in prayer. You feel like, I don't want to keep praying for this. It's it's hurtful. It's hard. Or maybe it's relational. Maybe there's a difficult friend or a coworker or a child who's difficult to love or you're in a marriage where there's difficulty and it's hard to want to endure in patience and love and forgiveness. It's challenging. Or there's health problems or you're lonely. You just feel like nobody sees you. Nobody notices you. You come in here. You feel invisible. You feel invisible to God. And it's hard to want to endure in faithfulness. And it may not be that we literally throw in the towel and just say, I'm not a Christian anymore. It's that we shrink away from seeking God or following him. And so what I want you to do right now is I actually want you to think about something in your spiritual life that is hard or an area of life where obedience feels hard. Maybe it's a person who's difficult to love and it's hard to endure in love with them. Or there's something that you feel like, I know we need to keep praying for this, but it's just so difficult to continue to have hope that God would do anything. Or you've shared the gospel and it doesn't seem like anybody's responding. You just want to give up and doing it, but you know God would call you to continue. Or you're lonely or you're hurt or you're grieving. I just want you to grab a hold of something, some situation in your life that it's hard and it makes it hard to seek Jesus in some ways. And what I want you to do is as I'm speaking, just hold that before the Spirit and invite God to teach you how to walk through that. And that's what we're going to be thinking about today is how do we endure hardship faithfully? That's where the passage last week left us. Um, let me go find that. Oh. Uh, thank you. Oh, I don't have that. Oh, sorry. Here it is. I had it. This is where Robert left us last week. So in the blue, the author of Hebrews is writing to the audience and saying, you guys have been through hard things. You've been through hard things. You've suffered things. You've partnered with people who suffer. But then in the yellow, he's saying, but you guys persevered because you remembered. Notice he's going to tip his hand where he's going today. He's 
reminding them that you guys knew you had a better possession, this enduring possession, and there was this reward that you were confident in. And what he's talking about, alluding to, is heaven, that they hung on to this promise of heaven, and that helped them to endure. And then he gets explicit in the green. He says, um, right above uh, in 37, for yet a, a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Jesus is coming, right? So life can be really hard. They're being persecuted, but he's calling them to endure in faithfulness. He's reminding them, Jesus is coming back soon. Verse 38, but my righteous ones shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then he, he affirms them, but sort of calls them to something at the same time. He says, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. And so he's saying, you guys have been through hard things. You are still facing hard things. But we endure like the righteous ones. We will endure by faith, not willpower, not self-reliance, not human fortitude, by faith. We will endure. And so the question we're going to think about today is what is faith? That's where Hebrews 11 is going to go. What is faith? And how does faith help us to endure hardship faithfully and obediently? So this is where we're going. So the text, this is what we just read. I know you can't read all that. That's okay. What I just want to show you is how we're going to approach the text. We're going to treat it like a sandwich. So the beginning and the end in the blue, that's where he's talking about the nature and the power of faith. And then everything in the, the yellow in the, in the middle, those are illustrations where he's talking about five people in one scenario, six situations that depict their stories of people living by faith. And so they illustrate what this faith looks like. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to approach the beginning and the end together first. We're going to look at the blue part to just try to figure out what is faith, how does it help us to endure, and then we'll revisit those stories in between and think about if perhaps we can see ourselves in them a little bit and learn from them. Okay, so that's where we're going. So again, our question, what is faith? How does faith help us to endure hardship? And the first thing I want us to see is that faith is trusting God to fulfill his promises. It's trust that God will bring his promises to pass. So faith is confidence that God is gonna make our hopes real. And I, I want us to first just look at the first sentence in this passage. And it's a sentence that we're very familiar with. A lot of us, if you grew up in church, you've heard this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, the danger whenever there's a passage that's really familiar is we just kind of read it and we're like, I just, I love that verse. We kind of skip over it. What I want us to do is to approach this verse with fresh curiosity. And the first thing I want you to notice is just that he uses two pairs. So faith is assurance of things hoped for. It's one. And then two, it's the conviction of things not seen. He's reiterating a similar idea. But I just want you to notice that those pairs, they don't actually fit that well together. I think it's important that we notice because he's going to highlight the power of faith by juxtaposing these words that we don't normally pair. For example, assurance means something like certainty. Like if I'm assuring Peter of something, I'm telling Peter, I'm certain of this and you can be certain as well. But usually hopes are not certainties yet. They're longings, but they're not certain. We may be more confident that they'll happen or less, but in general, hopes are not certain. But this is the power of faith. Faith is something, it's supernatural. It allows us to have deep confidence, even certainty of hopes, even though they've not yet come to pass. He does something similar with the next pairing. 
where he talks about conviction of things not seen. So again, imagine if this was a courthouse. I'm on trial. We bring Sam up. He's going to be a witness. And we ask him, hey, how confident are you that Kyle robbed the bank? And he's like, oh, 100% confidence. I'm completely convicted of that. And then we say, okay, well, what did you see? And he says, I didn't see anything. We'd all say like, well, I don't know if you can be really convinced and convicted of that belief if you didn't see it. But faith is something that gives us deep conviction and confidence, even though we haven't seen it come to pass yet. And so what he's doing is highlighting that faith is both powerful and supernatural. It's causing something to happen that does not usually happen. And so again, faith is deep trust that God is going to fulfill his promises. And what he's going to say, we'll we'll get into this more, is that that confidence that heaven is coming changes the way we live in the present moment and helps us to endure the present moment. So uh, let's just sit with this for one more moment. When we talk about hopes, that's really important that we remember the context. So hopes, it's not just our earthly longings or hopes. Like we have longings and hopes to be married, to have kids, to travel to Rome, to get a new job. And those are fine, but that's not what's in view here. He's not saying we are certain that all the things we long for this side of heaven are going to come to pass. The hopes that he's talking about is heaven. It's the new creation. The hope is that one day God will recreate all things. He will give us resurrected bodies and sin and death and suffering will be eradicated from that existence. And God himself will make his home there. That's our hope that we will live in a reality no longer marred by sin with God. No more depression, no more poverty, no more injustice, no more suffering. That's our hope. And he says that is certain. We can be confident of that. This side of heaven, there's tons of uncertainty. I don't know what will happen in one week in my life. But what I do know is that one day God will recreate all things and give me a resurrected body and I will live there with him. That's my hope. So one more thing, this word assurance up there, um, this is just a little nerdy moment. You don't need to know Greek to read this. That, that word is hypostasis, and it means assurance. It just means what it is translated as. It means assurance or confidence. Paul's used that word twice in Hebrews. He uses it in chapter three to mean the same thing, confidence, assurance. In chapter one, he uses it to describe Jesus, and the word can also mean something like substance or nature. And so it's describing Jesus, and it says Jesus is um, the exact nature or substance of God. Substance and assurance, those might sound like really different ideas, but I actually think there's something helpful when we chew on that and meditate on that because what he's saying is that something that is substantial, it's something that we can, we can lean on it. It's real. So he's saying our faith, it gives substance to our hopes or it might be better to say that our hopes are substantial. They are not fantasies. They're not pipe dreams and they're not even hopes that we really want but aren't sure if it's going to happen. The hope of heaven is sure. That's what he's trying to reiterate. The hope of heaven is sure. So two other things to say about faith as we talk about biblical faith. One is that biblical faith is not just intellectual, it's relational. It is intellectual, it deals with our beliefs, but it's relational. It's relational dependence upon God. And and similarly, because of that, our faith is a response to God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is the foundation and the root of our faith. It's the reason that we can go to bed at night and think it's good and wise. It's the best thing I can do is have faith in Jesus because he has proven himself to be faithful. And he's proven that most clearly when we look at the cross, where God fulfills his promise to rescue us. He proves his love by dying for us. 
And Jesus inaugurates and initiates this new kingdom that we look forward to, the fullness of, down the road. And so we look at the cross and we see God is so faithful. He is so good. So I will trust and obey him, even when things are hard. So let me try to illustrate this for us. I just want to dispel an unhelpful notion that floats around in the world about what faith is and just remind us and illustrate what faith actually is. So you, you've probably heard this. People talk about faith as blind. So people will criticize Christians as being people who you just kind of believe in this God that you've never seen because life's really hard and you just makes you feel better. It's this crutch or whatever. And you have no idea if any of this is real. It's just this nice thought. And so people view Christians like this, walking around, living by faith, and thinking of that as blind trust. But biblically, faith is not blind trust. Faith is thoughtful dependence that is rooted in an experience of God's goodness. And the experience could be in your own life, or it could be the experience of reading scripture and seeing Jesus die on a cross 2,000 years ago. But our faith, it is in unseen things, but it's not irrational or baseless. It is rooted in God's goodness. It is rooted in the story that we read in the Bible. And there's reason for it. And it's God's goodness. And so faith is not blind trust. It's relational dependence. If you could imagine Jesus standing up here, faith is, I just latch on to him. I'm leaning onto him, I'm hanging onto him, I'm clinging to Jesus. And if you imagine, right, here I am, let's just say this path right here, that's the rest of my life, that's all uncertain, but on the horizon I can see heaven. And so I'm just clinging to Jesus, trusting him that he will take me to heaven and he will recreate all things when I get there. And even though the middle is uncertain, it will be hard, it will be scary, but I know he is good. My faith isn't that the situation will go well. My faith is that God is good. And so even when life is hard and uncertain, I will cling to him and I will keep walking by faith. So again, I just want to ask you to, to, to recall what is the hard thing that you're carrying? Where does obedience feel difficult? Where does persevering and faithfulness feel tough? And what would it be like to cling to Jesus, trusting that one day he will lead you to heaven? He is good. How would that change how you navigate that? So the next thing I want to highlight about faith is something we just alluded to, and it's that faith gives us spiritual sight. Faith is trust that God will fulfill his promises. That's how the author of Hebrews is talking about it. There's lots we could say about faith in other passages. But then it also describes faith as something that gives us sight. So in verse 7, Noah believes God even though about, he, he trusts God even though the events are unseen, And even though the events of the flood are still unseen, something has been illuminated in Noah's mind. And even though he can't physically see water falling from the sky yet, he trusts and does, in one sense, figuratively see what's coming. And the author uses that idea, applies that to heaven for all of us, that we see reality as it actually is by faith. And specifically in this passage, we see heaven on the horizon. That's what's being alluded to in the first, uh, in, in verse one, we have conviction of things that are unseen. We don't physically see new creation in heaven yet, but we've, by faith, our spiritual eyesight has been illuminated so we can see it on the horizon. And we see all spiritual reality, all of life now through the lens of faith. It gives sight where we were once blind. And down in the rest of the passage, it picks up on this idea as well. Verse 13, it says, these all died in faith, 
all the men and women they were just listed, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So faith allows them to see heaven on the horizon, the promises of God, even though they don't get to see them yet. They don't see the fullness yet, but they see it on the horizon and it shaped how they lived in the present. And so faith illuminates our eyes to see reality as it actually is, and specifically to see heaven. There's a guy, a scholar named F.F. Bruce, and he has a quote that I like that I'm not with my notes. Let me find that. He says, physical eyesight produces conviction or evidence of visible things. So our physical eyes, we see physical things. Faith is the organ which enables people to see the invisible order. Faith allows us to see reality that the rest of the world can't see. And I'm not talking about people who are saying I'm seeing angels or demons or things like that. I think that can happen in moments. But just that we see God for who he actually is, Jesus for who he actually is, heaven on the horizon. We see these things now. Jesus plays with this idea of faith giving sight in John 9, or John plays with it. In John 9, we meet the Pharisees who have physical eyesight and they're religious leaders who should have spiritual sight. They should be able to see Jesus and recognize him as the Messiah but they're actually spiritually blind. And then we meet a blind man who doesn't have physical eyesight, but once Jesus heals him physically, his physical eyesight comes back to him. He also receives spiritual sight at the same moment, and he sees Jesus as the Messiah. There's a conversation at the end of that uh, chapter where Jesus essentially says, have you heard of the Messiah? And the, man said, the blind man says, yes, I have. And Jesus says, today you've seen him. And the man says, I believe he has faith. He can see Jesus for who he actually is. And so just to illustrate this, what faith does is it's like we were blind once and then faith gives us sight. We, can, we perceive the whole world differently through the eyes of faith. So just to illustrate some of this, here are three categories and some of the ideas that the world has about these, these categories. So God Apart from faith, we're spiritually blind. The world sees God as not real or maybe Yahweh is just one of many gods or he's cruel and unkind or he's distant and he's uninvolved. Jesus, maybe he's a good teacher. Maybe he's a fraud. Uh, Maybe he's just a normal guy and then people after him built him into some big deal that he's not actually. Or heaven and hell, maybe they're not real. Or Or heaven is for everybody. Everybody gets to go to heaven or you earn your way there. There are all these ideas swirling around. And what faith does is it gives us clarity. So all of a sudden we can look and see, no, Yahweh is the one true God. I believe that and I know that by faith. Jesus is God. He's Savior. He's King. Heaven and hell are real. And everybody's soul will go to one of those places based on their response to Jesus. Faith illuminates our eyesight, our spiritual eyesight, so we can see these things. And it's, it's more than that. We begin to see people differently. We see them as image bearers who deserve love. Who, uh, we, we see our enemies as people to reach out to who need Jesus. We value things differently. We no longer just allow the values of the world to press against our soul. Instead, it's the values of the kingdom that we see as most worthy of treasuring. So faith changes what we see, and specifically in this passage, it gives us clarity about heaven on the horizon. But it's not just that it gives us sight to see heaven. It gives us a hunger for heaven. In this last portion, what's describing these people of faith, they are longing so intensely for heaven, and they recognize that heaven, not earth, 
is their true home. They engage fully in the world around them, but they do not expect earth and the trinkets and the treasures of earth to satisfy, to be their paradise. They're looking for God to create a new city and that will be their true home. And this is a model for us that we don't look to earth, we don't look to America, we don't look to California or Whittier or La Mirada, we do not look to those places and say, this is my permanent home, nor do we look to those places to provide us what our soul needs most deeply. We know that that is found in Jesus and the home he is making. So look at the text with me. Um, Verse 13, these people of faith, they, they identify themselves as strangers and exiles. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Like this is like our, our long camping trip on earth and then we will return to our true home. You live differently. If you like are in your home or you're just visiting somewhere, you live differently. You can endure differently. Think of some of you maybe have been on a missions trip for a week and you're like, whew, if it's just a short little one week, I can like endure. And sometimes the Bible, this is so bizarre to us because our life feels so long. Sometimes the Bible is trying to say, your life is so short. So live like that. Endure these hard things because there's this incredible weight of glory, this wonderful place that is coming for you. So keep going. And it's so hard for us to, to flip the switch to perceive our life like that. I feel that. But these people, they're seeking, verse 14, they're seeking a different homeland. Verse 15, it talks about they're not preoccupied with the place they came from, the place they were born. 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, Abraham leaves Ur, Noah set out on his journey from one place and the boat went somewhere else. But he's saying they're not preoccupied with those places. They would have had opportunity to return. Abraham is not trying to get back to Ur where he was born. He's on this journey, and what it says is he's not even looking to some other kingdom on earth to satisfy. He's got his eyes fixed on this kingdom that God is building. And all these men and women do that. And then down near the bottom, he just nails this idea home. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. It's tempting for Americans to look to America to be the thing that rescues us, satisfies us, builds a sense of security around us. But these men and women of faith, they are not doing that. They're not looking to Egypt, to Israel, to any of these countries or nations to provide stability, to become their ultimate home. They trust that God will one day build a new city and that is where we will live for eternity and that is our true home. So we engage in the world around us and as Americans, we engage in this country. But we always remember that my true home is heaven. And again, he's going to say that changes the way we live. And it changes the way we live because when we can see a prize on the horizon, a goal that we long for, we endure difficult things to get there. Like, let's imagine I said, hey, anybody want to run a marathon today? Would anybody raise their hand? I had one last service. Anybody? Any? No? One. Okay, we got one. Nobody wants to run a marathon, just, no. But if I said, hey, if you run a marathon today, I will give you a beach house in Laguna. How many hands go up? You can jog it, you can walk it, right? A lot of hands start going up like, cool, that's, I'll like walk parts of it, I'll jog it, because the prize on the horizon makes me feel like I'll take those steps. 
And that's what he's describing here. He's saying that when heaven is on the horizon and you can see it and there's a hunger in your heart for it, then you will endure through hard things because the prize and the treasure is worth it. You'll press through. We're going to take kids to Unleashed next week where they go out and share the gospel with people on the beach. And it's so scary. And I, I, every time I go, I feel anxious. I feel like, why am I doing this? And then we go have conversations, but it's because we see heaven and we want others to see heaven. And heaven compels us to keep living faithfully in the midst of hardship. I shared this story months ago when I was preaching, but I was reading a book a while ago about a young man who lives through Auschwitz. And he's there at the very end where the Nazis are marching these prisoners because the allied forces are rolling through. And so he's on this death march and people are dying around him. He's emaciated and malnourished. But he can hear the, the artillery of the allied forces. And he describes his experience as like, it, he, he describes it as he begins to hope that if I can just make it through this night, I think I can be free. If I can just make it through this night, I think I can be free. And he, he can see his freedom on the horizon. And so with that freedom on the horizon, the hope of that, he can take one more step. And then he can take one more step. And then he can take one more step. And so what's being described here is that as we fix our eyes on heaven, we can take one more step of faithfulness. We can forgive that person one more time. We can bear with our children in patience one more time. We can share the gospel even though it seems like it's never working one more time. We pray one more day for this thing even though we've been so disappointed for praying for so long and it's not coming to pass. But with our eyes on heaven, we can go one more step, one more day of faithful living. And so the call here is to fix your eyes on heaven, to live a heavenly-minded life. And one of the dangers in America is that we have so much, in the West, we have so much wealth, comfort, and entertainment at our fingertips that it's tempting, I feel this, it is tempting to think that earth could be your paradise. And I don't mean we're like trying to bring the goodness of heaven into the world. We're just, it's tempting to settle for all the shiny things on earth. And even though life can feel really hard and there's division and all sorts of stuff around us, sometimes it's easy to feel like you look around and you feel like, I don't know, if I just watch Netflix and I just got a little raise at work, I think I feel all right. And we're lulled to sleep in our spiritual life and we sleepwalk through it. But this is a call to wake up, to fix our eyes in heaven, to live by faith and to long for this better country and this better kingdom that has been described. So the call here. And the description of faith is that faith is trusting God, that he will fulfill his promises, and this gives us sight to see heaven, and it even gives us a hunger for heaven. And now what he's going to do, or what he's already done in the middle of this text, is he gives stories of people who live like this. They have this deep trust that God is going to fulfill his promises and bring this new kingdom. They see heaven on the horizon, and they hunger for it, and they long for it. And it causes them to obey in all sorts of different situations, even though it's difficult. And so what I want us to do now is we're going to look at those six stories and we're going to use them sort of like case studies um, or different examples of, of ways that faith empowers us to obey. And what I want you to do is just see, do you relate to any of these stories and any of these people? So as I'm talking through this, walking through this, you notice what goes on in your own heart. And is there any of these scenarios and situations that you feel like, I relate to that, and I need Jesus to help me walk by faith in a scenario very similar to that. 
So there's six. Actually, the first one is not a, per, a story of a person. It's just, it's an example of belief. So I don't have this on the screen, so you've got to look in your Bible now with me. So again, he reminds us what faith is, this deep assurance and conviction of these future hopes. For by that faith, the people of old receive their commendation. One of the primary ideas in this passage is that you cannot please God without faith. So these people are commended, they please God only because of faith. And then he gives his first example. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So what he's saying here is that the visible physical world that we see we see, was not made from like cosmic Legos. God didn't have a bunch of pre-existing stuff that he pulled from and started putting it together to make the earth. The physical world that we see was created by the word of God. And so the physical world that we see was created by our invisible God. How do we know that? The author of Hebrews says, by faith. But again, this isn't blind faith. This isn't just like, I don't know. I have no real reason to believe that. This is faith that is rooted in experiencing and seeing God's goodness. And, and there are thoughtful scientific, Robert could get up here and give us all sorts of reasons scientifically why we should believe this. But I don't even think that's what he has in mind here. And that's, that is, those are good reasons to believe that the world was created by God. But what he has in mind is this relational dependence on God, that we have seen God's goodness throughout our life. We've seen it on the cross. We've seen it over and over again. So if he says, this is how the word was made, then we trust him. We take him at his word because he has proven himself to be good and faithful. faithful. He tells the truth. We can trust him. And so I just want to use this as a category for us to think about that sometimes there are things that feel difficult to believe and it requires faith to believe them. It's not just because we can wrap our mind around it fully. There's an element of faith. Again, not blind trust, but faith that is rooted in, I trust God to be good. And so we could think of maybe they're logical things, like the creation of the world that feels hard for us to believe that God made it by his word. There could be other things like God's teachings on human sexuality or the nature of hell that for some of us, there's hard emotional things about that. And yet by faith, we trust that God is wiser than we are. He's smarter than we are. He's better than we are. And so by faith, we believe these things. Even though something in us feels like that's hard but we know he's so good. And so we cling to his truth by faith. So is there something that God is calling you to believe that feels difficult to believe that today the invitation would be believe that by faith, trusting in his goodness that has been fully displayed in Jesus on the cross. That's the first category. The second thing is a story, the story of Cain and Abel. This is a really interesting story. Cain and Abel, they both bring sacrifices to God. This is early in the book of Genesis. And Abel's sacrifice is accepted, but Cain's is not. And we could ask, why? Sometimes people make uh, a big deal out of the nature of their sacrifices. Cain brings things that were grown out of the ground. Abel brings, thing, uh, brings an animal. But the text in Genesis does not point to that. What the text actually says, I think it gives us the answer. God says to Cain, if you do well, Will you not be accepted? But as it is, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to rule over you. And I think the the problem between Cain's sacrifice and Abel is not what they brought. 
It's sin. And Abel, by faith, has resisted sin sufficiently, and he pleases God when he comes to him. But Cain is indicted and warned, you are not resisting sin. And if you did, I would accept your, if you did well, if you resisted sin, then I would receive your offering. And so we could posit this positively and just say that Abel pleases God because of his faith. And that's what the next example is going to say explicitly with Enoch. But I think it's helpful for us to pull back and realize that the problem in Cain's life was sin ruling over him or or threatening to rule over him. And it does in the end. The story is about him being ruled by sin and he murders his brother. And so we please God by faith and we resist sin by faith. And is there sin in your life that you need to resist not by white-knuckled willpower and and human fortitude or digging deeper into self-reliance, but by faith? And as we'll see later with Sarah, faith actually opens us to receive power from God and that could help us to resist sin. So that's something for you to think about. Is there sin that you need to resist by faith? Verse five, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So again, he's reaching back to the book of Genesis. Enoch is a man who we know very little about. We have four sentences about him. And what is described is that he walks with God. Here, he pleases God. He does that by faith. And then God just takes him up to heaven. But the point of Enoch in this story is not for us to wonder. He's sort of this mysterious figure. The point is just he's being held up as this paradigm of faithfulness. That he, ple- he is a man who pleases God and walks with him. And if you want to please God and walk with God, you do that by faith. Trusting God, opening the Spirit's power, our eyes fixed on heaven. That's how we please God. Again, not just by digging deeper within my own self, but by leaning on Jesus. And so is there an area in your life where you feel like, I want to please God in this? And the invitation would be to do that, to pursue that by faith, relationally dependent on Jesus in that process. Next, we read about Noah. And in Noah, we learn that faith helps us to obey even when obedience is difficult or seems sort of crazy to the world around us. So most of us are familiar with the story of Noah. In, the, in, in Genesis, when God creates humanity, he creates humanity and he says, your job is to multiply and to fill the earth. By the time we get to Noah, what has been multiplied is wickedness and what fills the earth is violence. And so humans have done the very opposite of what they're supposed to do. They've multiplied and filled in the wrong way. So God brings judgment in the form of a flood. It's a very intense story. God tells Noah, here's what's gonna happen. It's going to be rain, it's going to flood, you got to build this boat. And Noah believes him. He just takes God at his word. And that's what faith means. We take God at his word. Noah trusts God, his faith in God, and so he obeys. He starts building this boat. And, you know, I don't know exactly what that was like, but we could probably imagine that that was really hard. It probably took him an absurdly long time to build this boat. Day after day, he's working on it. He's building this massive boat, not in water, and there's no way for him to move this boat to the water. Like even when we build massive boats, we just build them right basically on the water. We build it, get a little wall so the water's out there, but then when it's time to go, we just open the the gates and the water floods in because this thing is huge. So Noah's building the boat just on his front yard, and I'm sure people around him thought, that guy is crazy. 
what in the world is he doing? He spent years of his life doing this? We don't know how long it was. Sometimes you will be called to obey Jesus and it will feel very difficult. You will have to stand out. You will look odd to the world. But by faith, we trust that God is working. He's leading us to this future kingdom. And so we can endure whatever comes. Weird comments, weird glances, whatever it might be. It feels difficult, but we have faith in God and so we obey. So is there anything in your life that just feels like, I feel like God is inviting me to obey, but it feels hard or it feels crazy or I feel like people will look at me weird. And in Noah, we have a friend who obeys by faith in a situation like that. Next, we get Abraham. I love this story about Abraham. Um, Abraham teaches us to live by faith in the midst of uncertainty, to trust and follow, even though the situation around us does not make sense and we do not understand what God is doing. So a lot of us are familiar with the story of Abraham. Abraham is promised something by God. He gets three core parts of this promise. I'm gonna give you a land. I'm gonna give you a lot of offspring. You'll become a whole nation and I will bless you so you can be a blessing to others. That's the promise. And what it says about Abraham, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And I love this next line. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And I wonder if you've ever felt like that. Like, I don't really know what we're doing, God. I don't really understand this. Abraham receives this promise. He has his eyes on the horizon. He can see the the kingdom and the city that God's gonna build someday. He's longing for that. He's seeking that. But Abraham's life in the meantime, there's a lot of uncertainty. And if you know the story, Abraham really struggles to live by faith. He doesn't often. He fails to trust God. By the end of the story, he does. So it's a journey. But the story of Abraham teaches us that moments of uncertainty are places of transformation. Like if you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, that's a place where God wants to grow you. Because as stability and comfort and certainty are stripped away, we feel our need for God in new ways. Our eyes are directed to him. And our heart is open to be sanctified by Jesus. So some of you feel like this right now. Things feel really uncertain. I don't understand what God is doing. I don't really know where I'm going. And in Abraham, again, you have a friend who he did not know where he was going, but he, he hung on to God. He's hanging on to Yahweh wherever he leads, and that's the call for you. To trust God, not because the situation looks good, but because God is good. And lastly, we hear about Sarah. Sarah, it says, in verse 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So Sarah has faith, and again, she also doesn't immediately have faith, but she has faith, and this faith, it says, enables her to receive power. And for her, it's a miracle. She's this elderly woman who has a baby when she has no business having a baby. It's a miracle. And faith opens us to receive God's power. It could be that you get to experience something miraculous. It could also just be um, a different kind of miracle, like your heart has just decided a long time ago, I will not, ref- I, I will not forgive that person. But that's poisoning your own soul. And by faith, you receive power to forgive or to love this difficult person. It enables us to do things we could never do on our own because the spirit begins to work in our life. 
And so this is the picture of faith, and these are stories of faith. So what I want to ask you now is, is there any of those scenarios, these are just slightly reworded, but are there any of these situations or scenarios that are important for you? It's your life. There's something difficult that you feel like you need to believe, and God's inviting you to trust that God is wiser than you, and you believe by faith, or life feels uncertain, or he's calling you to do something that feels impossible, or obedience feels so difficult. And what would it be like for you to love that person, to step out in faith, to live with courage, to forgive somebody, whatever it is for you, to endure in faith with your eyes fixed on heaven, trusting God will bring it, trusting that he is good. Is there one of those scenarios that is important for you to keep talking to Jesus about? And then, uh, I don't know, hand in hand, as you do that, how, how do we become people who can live by faith? So here's just a shotgun blast of a few different ways that we can nurture or strengthen our faith. Jesus talks about people who have great faith or little faith. How do we become people who trust more deeply God and the future of heaven that is coming? Here are a few things. One, uh, Galatians 5 teaches that faith is a fruit of the Spirit. So faith is a gift from God. And so as we partner with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and open to the Spirit, faith grows. Um, Second, because faith comes from God, we can pray. We ask God. We do not manufacture our own faith. We partner with Jesus, partner with God. And so we can pray and ask God. Uh, The Psalms teach us that faith can be nurtured and strengthened by looking back. The Psalms recount Israel's history. And as we look back at God's faithfulness, it helps us trust that he will be faithful today, which helps us to live by faith. uh, I guess on the opposite end, like we talked about today, kind of dreaming about and meditating on our future in heaven can help our, strength, our faith to be strengthened. Because as we get excited about how good heaven will be, it helps our eyes to be fixated there. And as we've talked about, that helps us to endure the hardship because we know that glorious place is waiting for us. Faith grows in community. We rub off on each other. And being around other people who are seeking Jesus and trying to fix their eyes on heaven, we can imitate them. And lastly, faith is nurtured and strengthened by asking hard questions, not avoiding them. Faith is not anti-intellectual, and we're invited to ask difficult questions, and as we find there are thoughtful answers, the roots of our faith can grow deeper. So again, I just want you to think about, is there one of those things that would be important for you? Maybe you need to spend time meditating on the Bible and the past, or maybe even your own past. Maybe you need to spend time just thinking about, wondering, how, what will it be like to be with God in heaven? to wonder about that, dream about that, so that longing can grow in your heart. Maybe you need to plug into community here so you can be around other people who are trying to live like this. There's something for you. Let me end by just reading one last sentence, the very last sentence of our passage. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Um, Let me just leave you with this final reminder that When we live by faith, God embraces us. And this is what we need most. And so let us be people who seek the heavenly kingdom. And we don't try to build our own little earthly kingdom here. It's so tempting to try to build our own paradise, to build our own kingdom. But this passage is a call to fix our eyes in heaven, to treasure Jesus and his kingdom above everything to look forward to the embrace of God and to let our whole life be driven by that. The way we parent, the way we go to work, the way we do when we walk out of here, our whole life is shaped by this faith, this deep trust in Jesus. So would we treasure him above everything? Let me pray for us. 
Lord Jesus, would you be with us and help us to be people who live by faith? We confess our unbelief and our distrust. We confess that we get distracted by all the shiny things in the world. But in this moment, we want to reassert that you are good above all else. We want to remind ourselves that heaven awaits us. We want to instill in in our own selves courage to embrace difficulty and hardship and to do that faithfully because you are with us now and you wait for us in heaven. We'll be driven by that longing. We pray all this in your name. Amen.